And open your Bibles, please, once again to Genesis chapter 19, but this time to verse 15. We're in our series on Abraham and Sarah walking by faith, and another week in Genesis 19. We are glad to commissioners, some couple named the Moors are here somewhere, uh, Brian and Megan, back there. So we're glad Brian and Megan are here and back with us. Also, let me just say that insert in your bulletin, the, the pretty colorful one, uh, if you look at it, what it says is God has blessed us at the 11 o'clock service with lots of children. And what that means is we need help in children's church and nursery at 11 o'clock. Now, I know you guys are here at 830. Uh, but uh, I'm here all morning on most mornings, uh, Sunday. Uh, and if you'd be willing to serve, you can see the need is there. We really need help at 11 o'clock. Let me just drive that home uh, because of God's goodness to us. All right. Genesis 19, verse 15. This is the word of God. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said, and behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and brim fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the valley, and he looked And behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we're so glad that we do have before us this morning your word. We're asking now as we look at these very sobering words for your spirit to give us understanding, Lord, and how we can apply this to our lives today, we would pray. Uh, So work by your spirit in us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as an aside, we will not get to that fourth point today. So if you're following through and thinking, oh my, we're going to be forever. No, we'll not get to point four. I'll just tell you that. Uh, in the 1980s, right, 1980s, in the 1880s, if you wanted a good job, you would perhaps consider moving to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Mainline Canal was coming through the town. That brought jobs. So did the Pennsylvania Railroad and the Cambria Ironworks. So workers came, people from Wales and people from Germany. 
Uh, not to mention there were beautiful mountains that surrounded the town, and right through the town runs the, the Kanama River. In fact, they are so beautiful, some of the country's wealthiest people, the Carnegies and the Mellons, uh, would come out of Pittsburgh to hunt and fish at a private club above town. Where an old earth dam had been uh, modified to make a fishing lake for them. And 132 years ago today, May 30th, 1889, a huge rainstorm came and dropped some six to ten inches of rain. And despite the weather, the next day the people lined the streets of Johnstown for the Memorial Day parade. The Methodist pastor observed that the morning was delightful, the city was in its gayest mood with flags and banners and flowers everywhere. The streets were more crowded than we'd ever seen before. And then the old dam above the city collapsed. Almost four billion gallons of water. When that wall of water and debris hit Johnstown 57 minutes later, it was 60 feet high. It was traveling 40 miles an hour. People tried to escape by running to high ground, but some 2,000 of the city's 30,000 residents died. The third largest tragedy in our nation's history, next only to the Galveston flood in 9-11. In every one of those cases, life was fine until it wasn't. Uh, in a moment, in a way that was unexpected, that most people were not prepared for, something cataclysmic happened. And people were swept away. It would not be an exaggeration to say that the, there's not a more sobering subject than the judgment of God. As we said last week, we don't like to talk about this. We'd rather talk about God as our Father who art in heaven. We like to think of the benefits of that, that we have love and joy and peace and hope and security that, that's all ours. Yet any systematic study of God's Word uh, will constantly bring the certainty of judgment before us, whether in the Old Testament historical books or the Psalms or the prophets or the Gospels or the letters or Revelation, as we read from earlier this morning. This passage does not sugarcoat the judgment of God. The Bible never does. So what do we learn from Abraham's view from the mountain? Let's go to the text and see. First, it's the reality of judgment. Peter writes, 2 Peter 2, 6, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Now, one way you can see this is not a popular subject today, even among Christians, um, is that we tried to find some some recent hymns, and we're talking recent, I'm, I'm talking about 50 years worth, that address judgment. And other than a mention in Christ alone of, of God's wrath, we came up absolutely empty. Yet if we gloss over judgment, we're not fairly representing God in this world that desperately needs to, to, to hear and know the truth. Most unbelievers tend to think God, if He does exist, is not going to judge the world at least not according to the standards that, that we suggest. Their God, as they imagine Him to be, would never do such a thing because He's kind and loving. And, and they say, really, people are not all that bad. Yet the Bible paints a different picture. Indeed, God is kind and loving. 
In fact, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to reach repentance. But friends, the Bible's clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so when there's no repentance, that is, there's no turning from sin and rebellion against God, one to change one's life direction, then judgment comes. Already Genesis has given us the picture of Noah and God's judgment by the flood. Now here is Abraham's view from the mountain, smoke rising from the valley. God's judgment is a reality. We must never forget that God is a holy God. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He's the creator of all things. He has the privilege to set the standards. And no, we do not like to think about the destruction that Abraham sees. It took the lives of all the men and the women and the children and the animals and all the plants. By and large, we do not like to think about it, and so we do not. We tend to dismiss it from our minds. At least another day. We act as if it will not happen. Yet God says it will. Now, friends, this reality of judgment ought to renew our vision for ministry. It ought to light a fire, no pun intended, under our zeal for evangelism and missions here and throughout the world. And while opening line and sharing with people the good news of God's grace through Jesus Christ ought not necessarily be the statement that they're bound and destined to hell because they're sinners. The reality of judgment ought to be in our heads and in our words somewhere. See, according to the Bible, there's a hell. The children's catechism describes it as a place of dreadful and endless torment. And from the mountain, Abraham sees smoke rising from the land like the smoke of a furnace. Now given that, listen to this description of hell from Revelation 9. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from that shaft. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, The Folly of Looking Back and Fleeing from Sodom, put it this way. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in a storm of fire and brimstone was but a shadow of the destruction of the ungodly in hell. The misery of hell is set forth by various shadows and images in Scripture as blackness of darkness, a never-dying worm, a furnace of fire, a lake of fire and brimstone. Uh, the torments of the valley of the son of Hinnom, a storm of fire and brimstone. The reason so many similitudes are used is because none of them are sufficient. Any one does but partly and very imperfectly represent the truth. And therefore God makes use of many. Friends, as the reality of judgment struck home with you. Look from the mountain. See what Abraham sees. And the second note, the suddenness of judgment. 
Consider the timing of events of chapter 19 for a moment. It's been less than 24 hours since Abraham hosted his three guests on what it seemed to be initially a very ordinary day until they arrived. Then two of those guests made their way that evening to Sodom. Uh, and after Lot gets them into their ha- his house, they spend the better part of the night trying to convince Lot and his family to leave the city. Finally, Moses tells us in verse 15 that at the coming of dawn, their patience exhausted with Lot and needing to begin their work of destruction as responsible agents. They take Lot and his wife and his daughters by the hand and lead them out of the city. When Lot asked them to go to Zoar, they agreed. So verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. In other words, uh, the day in, in Sodom and Gomorrah and the plain, it's underway. Good morning, Sodom's already on the air. The earth stock market's pushing up. People think that bull market might reach 35000 that day. People are having breakfast. Some are out jogging. There's a shift change in the manufacturing area of town. Uh, there's a big one-day sale down at this Dead Sea Mall. Folks are talking about the big game between the Sodom Braves and the Gomorrah Giants that night. You know, it's just like Jesus says in Luke 17, 28, just as it was in the days of Sodom, of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. The day seems like every other day. Then comes verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur, King James calls that brimstone. That's where that comes from. Sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. He overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities which, and what grew on the ground. And so get verse 27. Abraham's returning to the scene that he left maybe 12 hours earlier. And Moses writes, Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And so between the time the sun came up the time Moses describes as early in the morning, judgment suddenly fell. Friends, we live like there's always tomorrow. Now, there's a theological reason for that. Uh, it comes back to the remnant of the image of God in us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has put in each human heart the concept of eternity. It's there. And even when people try to deny it, it's buried deep in their hearts. Uh, We know instinctively there is a forever. We mistakenly apply it to life on this present, present earth as if we're mortal here. That's the way Sodom and Gomorrah lived. That's the way Lot lived. He ignored eternity. And indeed, to be sure, the end of time, as we know, it still might be a thousand years away. Or it might be tomorrow. Or it might be this afternoon. For each of us, one of two things is going to happen. We will live until the return of Jesus in the day of judgment. Or we will die first and await the final judgment. 
Jesus said the day of his return will come like a flash of lightning. There will not be a text message or an email to warn us. There will not be a tornado-like alarm. Why? God's given us sufficient warning already in his word. And again, this ought to shake us up when we consider our family and our friends who do not yet know Jesus. And if you're here today and you do not yet know Jesus, we are so glad you're here to hear God's truth. But I'll be frank, this ought to shake you up. We do not know when Christ comes again as judge, nor do any of us know the day of our deaths. The sober truth of of judgment suddenness ought, again, to give us a sense of urgency about our response to the gospel and our ministry as a church. Finally, let's consider the future judgment. Again, another very sobering statement. We find that after Jesus has given instructions to his disciples, they're going out on a preaching mission, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news about Jesus. And he says, now if you go into a town and and they reject what you're teaching, if they reject the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says in Luke 10, 12, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So two things here. First, why will it be worse for those Jewish cities than Sodom? I mean, their sin's not so notorious. Friends, it's because judgment's not about the degree of sin. Judgment is about the rejection of Jesus Christ, the rejection of God, and to whom much is given, much is required. Second, Jesus is saying that day, that day, the judgment day is coming. Paul says about the day in his sermon to the Athenians, Acts 17, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. John writes in Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the lake book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Friends, that's that's just a sample. Any casual reading of the New Testament tells us that judgment is coming. You know, we're all used to the concept. If you went to school, you I mean, every six or nine weeks or semester, judgment came, right? You know? Uh, it was a report card. I remember those days. It was a long time ago, but I still remember. Uh, and maybe you're like me. Sometimes on that judgment day, there were some regrets about how you spent your time the previous couple of months. And we may think, well, you know, I'm not as bad as Sodom. 
Our nation's not, my wife's just not that decadent. And again, we, we tend to write off Sodom as being an extreme example of violent sexual sin. But again, friends, remember the other sins of Sodom that Ezekiel brought up? They were overfed, they were prosperous, they had plenty to eat, they lived with what the King James translates as, as an abundance of idleness. And yet they did not care for the poor and needy. They were arrogant and haughty, a society that, that thinks it can cast off the restraint of God. A culture that thinks it can pretend God does not exist or God does not count. A culture that thinks it can redefine what male and female is. Does it sound familiar? Their whole society is rotting away, not just their sexual morality. And God did away with them. Friends, judgment awaits. But in the midst of that, I've got some good news. Remember, Abraham had prayed, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And God's answer is in verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. So the answer is, no, God, God spares the righteous. Now, how does God spare the righteous? Tomorrow's Memorial Day, and we remember the men and the women who have died for our nation to keep us free. The fathers of at least two of our members that I know of, Benny Hurley and Don Painter, died for our nation in World War II. We must not forget their sacrifice nor the sacrifice of others so that we might be free. In the same way God spares the righteous, we're free from the impact of sin. We are prepared for judgment day because of Christ's sacrifice for us. He gave his life for us. We need to remember that. Our sin is punished, make no mistake. But that punishment is taken by Jesus in our place. The wrath of God towards our sin is poured out on Jesus. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that's brought us peace. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Isaiah 33:22 tells us something remarkable. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. God, the king of the universe, makes the rules. He's the lawgiver. And as judge, he has the right to declare the judgment. And within the Trinity, the triune God, Jesus is that judge. But he's also the judge who saves us. He saves us. What we must do is, is ask Jesus not only to be our judge, which he will be, but to be our savior. It's a matter of our admitting our sin and confessing it, being sorry for it. That's repentance. And then turning in faith, believing that he died in our place to take our, our penalty. And then we seek to live for him. That's how God saved us. That's how we're spared judgment. And friends, this is glorious news. Glorious news that we need to share. Because you shall know how many people we come into contact with every day, whether we're school or the job, the neighborhood, the marketplace. And maybe even our own family. 
where people do not know Jesus Christ. People do not know or realize the reality of a sudden future judgment. Now I wonder, what did Abraham expect to see that morning in his view from the mountain? You know what I think he thought? I think he thought he would see the cities of the plain, business as usual. I think he thought, surely it would be easy to find ten righteous people living there. Surely there's ten. I think Abraham probably underestimated the spread and the power of sin in people. He thought judgment would not happen. And what scares me this morning is that in our view from Chestnut Mountain, that we might think the same thing. We think everybody's all right because we just do not want to talk about judgment and God's wrath. And besides, we do not think it will happen anytime soon. And we forget. God's a holy God. God punishes sin. And anybody, anybody, even our closest family and friends who do not know Jesus, well, they face eternal punishment. So what about us this morning? Three, three things to take away. First question is, do we have a prepared heart? And God's judgment on Sodom is a picture of God's coming judgment on people. And are you prepared for that day? See, I want to tell you that what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah pales in comparison to what happened at the cross when God judged our sin and poured out His wrath on Jesus. Friends, Jesus took that wrath for us. He suffered all of God's wrath and died for us to save us from our sin. Jesus took all the wrath of God towards all the sin of all the people of God. You know, when people tell me they reject the God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath to embrace the New Testament God of love, well, friends, I tell them there's no greater display of God's wrath than the cross. Nor is there a greater display of God's love than the cross. The question is, is your hope today in Jesus Christ? And if not, we'd love to share with you today how you can know Him. Second, we need a a guarded heart. We may be like Lot and be tormented by what we see around us. I suspect we are. And like Lot, we, we just do nothing. We need to guard our hearts becoming, against becoming calloused towards a sinful world, frustrated by all the evil we see. It all does at times seem overwhelming. Right now in our view from the mountain, we see buying and selling. We see eating and drinking, planting and building. And we know the future. And so we must renew our zeal for God's glory. And our compassion for God's world in such a way that we find every possible avenue to engage God's world with the gospel. Equipping one another to share the story of God's grace. So there will be more and more people to exalt Him as our Savior and Lord. 
leads to the third takeaway. What I think is maybe the most startling thing in our text. It's what Abraham says when he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. You see what he said when he saw the judgment of God poured out? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. His view from the mountain leaves him speechless. And I'm not sure what he was thinking about in that silence. Lot and his family probably. What happened to them? The thousands who are now dead. The devastating result of sin. The incredible power of God on display. Or perhaps the incredible God is his friend. And has made incredible promises. He has promised a descendant who will be a blessing to the nations and has already shown him grace. Perhaps in our view from the mountain today, as we look out over the world, we would do well for a while to be silent and quietly contemplate what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do for the glory of his name. And then consider how we will respond. Let's pray. Father, what we read here is true and it's certain. Judgment's coming. It has come and it will come. So, Father, our our first heart's desire is that everyone here would be prepared for that. Lord, that each person here knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Knows your love displayed at the cross in Jesus Christ. And your gift of eternal life to all who will receive it. Who will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. So, Lord, today, draw anybody here that's not a believer to Jesus Christ. Then, Father, makes us realize all of us have family, we have friends, we have co-workers, we have neighbors. Father, they don't know Jesus. So, Father, we're praying that they come to know Him. Father, as we contemplate that reality of judgment, as we look out and see a world that's busy with itself, Father, you help us know how to engage this world, Father. Give us a zeal to engage the community we live in, Father, to send out missionaries to engage the world that we find ourselves in so that more and more people might come to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to exalt in Him. Father, may that be our prayer, we pray. And this we ask in Jesus' name.